But I'm excited about uh, this text of Scripture that uh, we're going to be looking at today out of James chapter 1. So if you'd find your Bible and open it to James chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. As you remember, we looked at uh, the text last week out of chapter 1 as we began this four-week series on what authentic faith really looks like. And we talked about how authentic faith is really can be measured on how you and I respond to the trials of life. And we said and established this, while trials indeed are undesirable, they actually can be beneficial for us because that's really when you and I learn the lessons of life. And so we can lean into these things because they refine us and they, they develop us and they help us to evaluate ourselves in a right way. Victor Hugo, the great French literary giant of the 19th century, was himself exiled by Napoleon, forced to spend years of adversity away from France. And during those trying days, he found himself and his fame began to explode. And later he would exclaim, why was I not exiled before? (laughs) Helen Keller never knew the beauty of seeing or hearing, yet in her blindness and her deafness declared, I thank God for these hardships, for through them I found myself, I found my life, I found my work, and I found my God. You know, we said that these trials will either make us or break us, they can refine us or ruin us, and James is declaring men and women of faith are revealed in these challenges. And so it's not surprising now through chapter 1, he brings up another characteristic or a a validation of authentic faith, and that is how you and I resist temptation. So please stand on and reading God's Word today. I think we have it on the screen there, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Father in heaven, we pray today that we would understand clearly and applicable what your word has to say about the temptations of life. We thank you that Lord, that we have the provisions to withstand these temptations because you tell us indeed how we can persevere and do those things. So now I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit. You'd anoint the preaching of your word. I pray that you would speak to us from this text of scripture. I pray in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Mark Twain one time said, I can resist anything but temptation. (laughs) From from that one quote, we can pretty much surmise that Samuel Clements was not a man of authentic faith. (laughs) But truth of the matter is, that's where a lot of people live. They, They can resist anything except something that's tempting. And James is simply saying this, 
even when we become believers in Jesus Christ, this alluring desires, these temptations that are out there doesn't cease. It was C.S. Lewis who wrote, No man knows uh, how bad he is until he tries to be good. Only those who try to resist temptation realize how strong it really is. You find out the strength of the wind by walking into it, not by lying down. You find the strength of an army by fighting it, not surrendering to it. We never find our strength of an evil impulse inside until we choose to fight against it. And Christ, the only one who ever never yielded to temptation, is the only one who knows the full extent of what temptation means. So James is telling us here that we indeed are up against temptation. So I want to begin with the first, and you'll find uh, in the compass this outline. If you want to fill in the blanks there, maybe it'll be beneficial for you to write some things down. I want to talk first about the origin of temptation. Because in the midst of James dealing with trials and temptation, he finds it necessary to simply say this. You're going to have to take some personal responsibility. Don't point a finger of blame, but uh, not to look around and blame somebody else, or certainly to point a finger upward and blame God. And that's our tendency. We're looking for someone we can defect the blame to and point a finger at someone else's fault rather than take responsibility for ourselves. Dr. Stephen Reese in Psychology Today said, we live in an era when few people want to be held responsible for their behavior. Whether it's an elementary student who refuses to do their homework and an old company CEO who engages in criminal behavior, the fault belongs elsewhere. Can I tell you, I have been to Leavenworth Prison. And I was just a visitor, believe me. <laughs> but I went in there, and I had an opportunity to engage some people that had been in white-collar crimes. I didn't go to the big house. I went to the ranch outside Leavenworth and looked over at the big house. But here's what I noticed about every one of these guys that I engaged in conversation. You know what? None of them were guilty. Every one of them were wrongly accused. Everyone had reason that whatever they did, they denied or they pointed a finger of blame on why this thing happened. And here's what God is saying. Look, we don't need to be pointing a finger at someone else when we fall into temptation. And we certainly don't need to be pointing a finger at God. Now, there's some misguided advocates out there that even want to place the blame on God, it seems. And James is saying, oh no, God is untemptable. As asbestos is to fire, so God is to temptation. Certainly remember in the ministry of Jesus, he's baptized. He begins his earthly ministry. And then it says in Matthew chapter 4, he's led by the Spirit into the desert. And there Satan would tempt him. Three temptations. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And he was without sin. So while temptation was real in every sense... The difference was the nature of the Lord Jesus prohibited him from giving in to temptation. Understand, those who advocated this position that it was God who tempted them, here's the, way, here's the way this works because we hear it in our day and time even as well, that God is to blame. It becomes the argument for every bad behavior that's out there. You know how, how it's voiced? Well, God made me this way. You see, that's the reason I have this addictive behavior, because God made me this way. This is the reason that I'm practicing homosexuality. God made me this way. And see, in essence, 
that becomes the default. That begins the point of blame. And that's what James is giving clarity to here. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Actually, you can trace our inherent desire all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This placing blame thing, you remember. It was Adam who blamed Eve, Eve who blamed the serpent. And so it is with our propensity. We want to blame other people. It becomes inherent in who we are. But the text says the shame belongs to you and me alone. And here he identifies the culprit as lust. And while we usually think of lust and being sexual lust, and it is, it's more inclusive than that, lust is really anything outside the will of God. People lust for power. People lust for prominence, for prestige, for materialism, and certainly for sexual relationships. The Old Testament in the, in the Ten Commandments, it's covetousness, it's called. And they, we desire that allurement. And he uses two words here where he says we're drawn away and enticed. It, it, it's a word picture of baiting a hook or setting a trap. And this fishing metaphor is one that I, I certainly understand. And many of you who are fishermen or fisherwomen know as well. You put... You bait a hook, or you're, if you're fishing for bass, maybe you use a, a plastic worm or a spinner bait, a topwater lure, whatever it is. But the reason that we put these lures on there, we're trying to entice the fish to take the bait. And if we find where the fish are located and, and we're using a, a, a plastic worm, it's bumping around where these fish fish are are nesting, all of a sudden they take the bait, we set the hook, and we reel them in, and they're caught. And that's what he's saying here. That's the way temptation is. It comes our way. We're enticed by it. We take the bait, and suddenly we're caught. We're hooked. And there's no escape. And sin has made its way into our life. So we see the origin. Secondly, I want to talk about the outcome, and James gives this progression here of how temptation works. He says it starts with a desire. Look what verse 14 says. Each one is tempted when he draw, is drawn away by his own, his own desires. Now, now, let me say something quickly. Desire in itself is not wrong, is it? I mean, we can have desires for right things, for virtuous things. But a carnal desire can always be crippling. Desiring things that are immoral, perverted, obscene, or evil is where temptation begins. He said it begins with desire, and then just like we're seeking to deceive these fish or, or, or to set a trap to get an animal, we, we're, we're, we're pretty soon they're deceived. And, and so from desire, it goes to deception. How does it work with us? Well, we take the bait. We have this carnal desire, and... Pretty soon we're deceived. We think we can enter into that and we won't get caught. Or it won't affect us. Or we can somehow fulfill this lustful pursuit and not pay the consequences. Because Satan blinds our eyes to the reality that this progression begins with a desire and then to deceit. And then he goes on to say, then it results to disobedience. We do take the bait. We make the choice. We wrongfully get involved. And then what do we do when we feel like the things we're about to get caught? We begin to lie to cover it up. 
And one offense leads to another, and we begin to dig a deeper hole, and soon we're in pretty sad shape. Do you see how it happens? Here's what happens. Our desires are relative to our emotions. The allurement and the attraction, and we get emotionally involved. And then what happens with our emotions are moved. It affects our volitional choices. The intellect, we get deceived. Our mind is bought in. Finally, the will is engaged and we're disobedient. I know you've heard me say this, but it deserves to be said right here. See, we're all one step away from stupid. (laughs) If that desire gets to deceit, deceit will result in disobedience. And James changes the metaphor really from hunting and fishing here to the birth of a baby in verse 15. He says, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. So when when a baby is born, we know the birth certificate has their name on it. But truth of the matter is, you could write sin on that birth certificate as well. Because we're sinners, we're all born in sin. And when sin grows up, he says, it produces a dreaded offspring, and it's death itself. So here's a cycle of temptation. First it begins with desire, then to deceit, then to disobedience, and then he says it is eventually death, for the wages of sin is death. Now, I'm not talking about physical death, although some sins do lead to physical death. But I'm talking about spiritual death. Isaiah the prophet said, The Lord's hand is not so short he cannot save. His ear so dull he cannot hear. But your sins have come between you and your God. And he has hid his face from you and he will not hear you. The reason is essential for you and I to be born again is because we're spiritually dead and trespasses and sin. And we face the wages of our sin, which is death. But in this epistle, James is declaring, so it is, in a sense, with unauthentic or pretentious faith. You're spiritually dead, and you can only be made alive this way by personal repentance. And here he talks about in verse 18... That how faith is the giver of life. He brought us out of spiritual death by the word of truth. So understand with me. Temptation doesn't diminish when you and I are born again, does it? As long as you and I live in this body, there is fleshly tendencies that continue to war against the soul. That's the reason the Bible clearly says that you and I have to flee temptations. Honestly, temptations are not unlike what I preached on last Sunday, the trials of life. Actually, I don't know if you remember, but it's the same word. And uh, Parasmus is the Greek word. It can be translated temptation. It can be translated trial. It's all a matter of context of translation. And trials are given to us, of course, as we talked about, to refine us and develop us into what can be for our good and God's glory. However, temptations are what Satan uses to trip us up, destroy our lives, steal our joy, and lead us eventually into spiritual ruin. But it is through trials and temptation that, hear me now, we really discover who we are. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about authentic faith. How do you resist temptation 
Here he says it begins with desire. Your emotions are moved. Deceit begins. We get ideas in our mind. And pretty soon we're on our way volitionally to choose the wrong path. And you know what we'll do? We'll rationalize and justify what we want to do. And all along we know in our heart of hearts, in the secret place of our life, that there's a dreaded destiny that lies ahead. Listen to me today. We live in a day and time where there is no way to escape all the sexual stimuli that's out there. Every commercial, every time you turn on the television, we're reminded of the the sexualization of the culture in which we live. And here's what I'm telling you today. If I'm going on a diet, I don't go to the donut shop. That doesn't work well. If I'm trying to stay sober, I don't go hang out at the bar. And I'm telling you, if you want to stay away from temptation, you've got to stay away from what it is that draws you away, that deceives you and gets you on the wrong path. How do you know? Because God has given us the Holy Spirit of God if we'll yield to Him. You see, staying away from temptation is relative to where you choose to traffic. People fall into sin oftentimes when I call what I call bad geography. They're in the wrong place, always at the wrong time when they fall into sin. But I'm telling you today, it doesn't matter who you are. If, if, if you're King David, a man after God's own heart, you put him in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he fell into sin. It'll be the same for me, and it'll be the same for you. We have to guard our heart, for out of it come the issues of life. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Man, I'm telling you, it's the proof text on temptation. Paul writes, there is no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. But God's faithful, and he not, will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you might be able to bear it. You can mark this down. You can etch it in stone. You can write it on the wall. When temptation comes your way, there'll be an escape hatch for you to get in and get away. And you'll recognize it because God will provide it. But will you be willing to stay away? Which brings me to the the third thing I want to talk about and final thing. Not only the origin of temptation, the outcome... But let's, let's conclude with, uh, with the overcomer of temptation, of course. Because James sets out on mission here to help us understand the character and the consistency of God. For he is our overcomer. What's the Bible say in 1 John? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Stories told a Sunday school teacher of four and five-year-olds was teaching one Sunday and there was a girl who was had a piece of paper and she was drawing you know real aggressively and and the teacher said what are you doing she said I'm drawing a picture of God and the teacher said how can you do that no one knows what God looks like and the little girl says well they will when I get through (laughs) and James is giving us a picture of God here in this and his his character his his attributes And he tells us this, that he is the father of light. 
He doesn't lead us into darkness. He leads us into light. And he created all of the luminaries because he's the father of light. You see, the Milky Way uh, galaxy uh, contains a million stars. It's brighter than the sun that we look at on an ongoing basis, 93 million miles away. If you could travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 100,000 years to go across the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way, as I understand it, is only one galaxy of countless others. And I'm telling you, it was God that created light in every one of these places, but it doesn't end there. It is also true that God created all moral and spiritual light. And Jesus Christ steps down from heaven's gates incarnate, and he embodies all light. And John would write of Jesus, he is the light who comes and brings light to every man. He said he is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. And in our text, James says God is the light that cannot be eclipsed. He is the dependable God. There's no variation in him. He's immutable. He doesn't change because he doesn't need to change. He lives in moral perfection. And certainly as we live our life here on earth, the amount of light and the intensity of light varies with the change of seasons. And I was out yesterday and it was a bright sunny day and man, it just made me look forward to spring. There's going to be a little more sunshine, a little more light. But I'm telling you, while that varies in our change of season, it doesn't vary with our God. He's spot on. He's calculated. He's consistent. He's always loving. He's always merciful. He's always trustworthy. He changes not. His compassions, they fail not. You know, listen, we look around. We see how rapidly our world is changing and nothing seems to stay the same. But I'm telling you today, amidst all the chaos and confusion and economic uncertainty and political polarization, there is one who does not change. There's one who does not need to change. He's immutable and he is our God. Under A, he is dependable. Our God is dependable. No variation, no shadow of turning. He is always a faithful God. He's dependable. But also he goes on to say here, he's a delightful God. He's the giver of every good gift. This was distinctly different than the Jewish perception of God as well as the Greeks. The Jews had a fear of God and the wrath of God's judgment. And it's true, the love of God in the Old Testament, I think we would all agree, is somewhat veiled. And we do find a few verses of the hesed, the loving kindness of God that's given to us in the Old Testament. But certainly, the ultimate proof of the great love of God The agape love of God, the condescending love of God is seen in Jesus Christ. So to tell this Jewish audience that God is the God who gives every good gift was somewhat astonishing, yet it was riveting as well. They feared God. The Greeks loathed God, declaring that God was the God of apatheia, meaning where we get the English word apathy. The word didn't mean the same as it does today, which apathy means indifference, of course. It connoted an inability to feel anything at all. They had the idea that God 
didn't really love man. He didn't hate man. He was insulated from having any emotional feelings at all. So what a revelation as a Greek and a Jewish audience here would read this text to learn that our God's a giving God. Not only is he giving God, every good, good gift that we ever receive comes down from a God who loves us. You know, I, it always begs the question, is that the God that, that you know? The God who is the giver of every good gift? Now, we know God by these two attributes. He's a holy God, which means he's unique. He's set apart. He's high and lifted up. But also that he is morally right. He sets the standard of righteousness. He's El Shaddai. He's the Lord God Almighty. But he's loving and he's giving as well. And with the New Testament, we learn about this great loving God who loved us and gave himself for us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but has everlasting life. Some of you here today have been somewhat indifferent to the God who says, I've got a lot of good gifts to give you. I give you the greatest gift in my son. But I'm telling you, here's here's a way we can learn to glorify God and praise God. Because we can wonder why things happen in our life and, and how, how things are, are difficult and, and, and all of those sort of things. But here's what we can do. If we get something good, we can give God the glory, okay? We can default to that because it says, what is the text is saying? Every good gift comes from God himself. In context, James says, do you see it? God does not give birth to temptation, but regeneration. He'll bring us forth, he says, from the word of truth. He's dependable. He's delightful. And finally, he undersea is our deliverer. So he's setting in contrast to this, this awful birth of sin in verse 5 to the new birth that now becomes available through God's word. It's what happens when we preach the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You know, I'm convinced the reason many mainline churches across the country are dead and lifeless is because they've substituted the preaching of God's Word to now dealing primarily with felt needs and social ministry and and focus on inclusiveness rather than simply preach the gospel. But how can we be saved without the preaching of the truths of the gospel? And here James mentions first fruits. We become the first fruits, a kind of first fruits to his creatures. So this is a first century audience he's writing to. They understood what first fruits was all about. In the Old Testament, how God at harvest time would call for the people to give as a as an offering to God the first fruits of the harvest because he wanted their best. And now, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we become this first fruits offering to God himself. And since God gave us his best, guess what? He wants our best as well. I wonder, what have you given in return? Let me wind it up with this. Understand, this is a takeaway. 
Trials indeed are allowed by God to refine us and redeem us, to restore us. They're purposeful and they have potential in our life. In contrast, temptations, on the contrary, can take you down spiritually. They certainly will take you down morally. And he's simply saying here, you're drawn away by your own desire, which leads to deception and takes you to disobedience. Now, in verse 12 is where we started here. And it says in my translation, which is the New King James, which we read, blessed is a man who endures temptation. Some modern translations use the word trials there, but those two words could be interchangeable according to context. I like temptation here because that's what he's developing as he moves forward in the text. But either one of these can be true. But he says, blessed is the man who endures these things. That word makarios in the Greek New Testament, it means happiness. He says, look, if we resist temptation and you and I indeed handle the trials of life as we ought to to handle them, then there'll be joy in our life. There's joy in survival. There's joy, there's blessedness in not falling into sin. There's satisfaction when we endure the trials and, and we persevere. But there's great misery in being caught in your sin and the price of sin is extremely high. He says there's happiness though. When we do these things. I think we could all agree, quickly agree, we want to find blessedness in our life and we want to be happy people. Man, I don't know about you, but I like to be around people that are happy. It's always special, it's always sweet when someone is happy. It's not surprising when Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about blessedness and happiness. And, and, and so, here he's telling us this, blessed is the man, happy is the man who, who endures temptation. And when he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life. You know, our forefathers, back in July 4th, 1776, understood the desire for Americans to be happy when they wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And that they will, are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among those are these three things. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm telling you the pursuit of happiness will never be realized until you come in right relationship and live in right relationship with God. Don't let the trials of life choke out the joy in your life. Don't let temptation have its way. Stay right with God. Stay on the path of walking with God. And here's the promise of God. That in your life and in my life there will be joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we can do these things through Christ who gives us strength. Would you bow your heads today? Father, I would pray for each one of us who are here that are continually being bombarded with allurements, with temptation. And God, I would just pray that we would take serious what your word is telling us here. That we have to take responsibility for ourselves. 
And Lord, I pray that we would volitionally choose the high road of life and love, of walking to please you and guard our own life from falling into the ditches of despair. Lord, so many people have not only fallen into this ditch, but they wallowed in it for weeks and months and even years and seemingly cannot do anything other than that. But Lord, we're grateful that in your grace, you reach down with a hand of deliverance. And I pray even today, all of us would default to our own carnal desire and let you live your life in us. Christ in us is the hope of glory. So come once again, Holy Spirit, to help us and enable us and lead us in all truth. Father, I pray for those who perhaps need to come today, maybe confess a sin to someone, to have someone pray with them. Perhaps that person who's been dealing with trials and temptations and, and Lord, they just need someone to bear their burdens with them today. I pray they'd come. It's your invitation now. We pray, O Holy Spirit of God, you would have your will and way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together. David's going to lead us in this invitation hymn. We'll be here at the front if you'd like to come and make a decision for the Lord today. You're here, never had a relationship with God, never trusted Christ. What a wonderful day to give your heart to Christ. You can start over with Him. It's never too late for a new beginning. Come today while we sing. God calls. You come while we sing. Yeah.